Welcome to the Tone Duff Sessions, hosted by Bruce Duff, author of The Smell of Death, musician, producer, and artist manager. The conversations are recorded at Tone Duff Studio in Hollywood, California, and are a feature of Rare Bird Radio. All right, so we just cut in the middle of us kind of a gathering speed here. Uh, this is Tone Duff session number seven. I'm here with a couple of guys many of you may know. Uh, and in fact, I was thinking of changing the name of it for this time to the Overachievers Club because we have <laughs> Tom DeSavio and Chris Morris with us. And you can just barely lift uh, their resumes with both arms. I mean, it's a lot of stuff you guys have done. and We're going to dive in. Uh, say hello to the to the hello, world. Everybody. Hello, teens and queens. There this, you go. This may be your last show. <laughs> yeah. it's well, quite possible. I don't know who would cancel me. How they do that? It's it's up to the publishers. I, I have no. Anyone say. that's ever met Chris, uh, watch it. I love you. You know, and speaking of publishing and writing, I'd like to dig in there as both of you guys helmed uh, editor chairs at. Uh, trade magazines, which <laughs> now, I mean, you Tom, laughed just thinking about it. In Tom's no, case, that's that's ancient history. I, no, I, well, I was Cashbox. Obviously, you've never read Cashbox. So oh no, I no, really I used to, I used to get like, it. Okay, right, yeah, sure. And, <laughs> no one has ever. I've never gotten true journalistic props for working at, at Cashbox, but I did get a lot of. Gee, I out. wonder why. <laughs> but I when, appreciate your. Uh, when when uh, when I first started working at Billboard, Tom was working at Cashbox, and that's how he we was met. there before you. Yeah, actually, he was. Okay. I, and I. So well, give me a year here, because I I'm, I know it was 1986. 87 okay. is when I met you. Well, what, 87 is when I started there. I met oh, okay. you. Though probably eighty six or eighty five. Yeah, well, I, I was already working at, at Billboard yeah. at that point, but I had been working for. Well, you you used to read me in the Reader before yeah. that, right? That's okay. how I yeah. So you were actually at the Reader before Billboard. I uh, you I, were at the Reader all the way back to the seventies, right? I I I am the only person who was in both the first and the last issue of the Los Angeles Reader. All and right, that that, that covers an eighteen. 18 year stretch. That's amazing. I, I took that. I took one year off to work for Bud Scapa over at Music Connection because uh, uh, Chicago put in a new publisher of the reader who was uh, a psychotic coke addict, <laughs> and he's dead now, so I can say that. Um, but no, I I was the. Uh, with the exception of that one year, I was the only music critic that the reader ever had. Well, so were you with uh, Music Connection when I was there? What, what was your job there? I, I was writing a column. Bud, Bud brought me in to, to do a column for a year. I can't even remember what the column was called. So that'd been like 86 too, right? No, 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 no. Uh, possibly. Possibly. Because he remember was gone. Day. I would say Bud was gone by 87 or 88. Yeah, yeah. he was over... I was working for him at Cashbox. Yeah, well, I... He came I, to Cashbox yeah, in 88, I think. I left Music Connection after they axed Bud, and right at, right at that point, James Vowell, who was the original uh, editor, <clears throat> editor of The Reader, took over as publisher as well, and he said, do you want your old job back? And I said, yeah. So I stayed there until uh, the paper was sold to New Times, and they folded it. But didn't you roll into New Times as well no. for a while? No, I, I did not. I thought you did. I, I went to work for the Weekly as a freelancer. Okay. That's sort of where I, I did my last stuff was for the Weekly. Mm -hmm. And I finally said, i got to get out no, of had No, I had a, well, I, had a, I was lucky enough to be over at the Weekly when John Payne was the music editor. There. Yes. And he was, he was just terrific. I still love the guy, and he was, he was the best editor I ever had. He, he was an excellent editor. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and he's one of those guys that was forced out because they 
just didn't want to pay that kind of money for the level of work he was doing. Yeah, I can't even remember the name of the woman they brought in to replace him, but she had, like, the IQ of a newt. <laughs> I mean, since then, the, the weeklies burned through music editors. Well, yeah, they're good at that. Yeah. They're good at that. But, of course, now they don't even publish any criticism. It's just like, you know, Jeff Weiss's weekly rapper and some other stuff. And Rollins, you know, that's, that's what they publish. But I, I could flog them forever. Tom, you want to flog them? Yeah, no, I'm just, I'm just impressed. You have less black updates than I thought you had. You're, well, you're, you're, yeah, your, your recall's pretty good here. Where? <laughs> it's all coming back to me because of the anti-Alzheimer's medication. You know, I hate, I hate giving this man compliments, as you'll, as you know. As you'll see, as you'll see. No, but he was, and I, and I love saying this just to, to piss him off. As a kid, uh, we'd pine over his stuff in the reader. And so he was as much a punk rock icon to me as any of these any of these people. And at one point, through some mutual friends, I think Lisa Johnson, Janice, I, I Janice Garza, yeah, met mm -hmm. Janice Garza, um, met Chris, and was just you know stars in my eyes. It's like you're that guy that was writing all this stuff, and we just uh, he was just for me. Uh, obviously, there's a, a lot of you know a handful of really wonderful journalists out here. Uh, writing about the punk scene back then, but for me, he was he was Babe Ruth. Well, well, you know, up outside of Slash Magazine, mm -hmm. there weren't a lot of people who were writing about punk rock, and right. certainly, I mean, I was fortunate enough to have a venue mm -hmm. at the Reader where I could write about anything that I wanted to write about, and that was what was interesting at the time. And so, you know, I got a chance to write about everything punk rock. You know, both the local bands, and there were a ton of good ones, mm -hmm. and all the amazing acts that were coming in from New York and Cleveland and London, you know. And I was very fortunate because I had a venue where I could do stuff that nobody else really could do. And there wasn't much else out at the time. I mean, the Weekly was probably not even as focused as the reader on it. Well, the Weekly, had, the weekly had a lot of people writing about music. And and they all had kind of they all took different slices of the pie, mm -hmm. and I was just allowed to kind of follow what I wanted to do, and I don't think anybody over at the weekly had that option. So, right. you know, I got a chance to really focus. So you were digging into uh, punk rock and in here and seeing the mask and all that stuff kind of from the get go well, in '77. I did not see the mask. You were never because, at the mask. Um, I I got to Los Angeles in. Uh, April of 1977. The Mask opened, or Slash started publishing in May of 1977, and I think The Mask started around the same time. Now, when I got here, I did not drive, and I still don't drive, and so I didn't get around town very much. So I, by the time I started going to local punk shows, which was about January of 78, The Mask had pretty much folded at that point. They'd gotten a lot of pressure from the police and and all the Hollywood City Fathers, and it was you know, just a, a, a blot on, you know, the glitter of Hollywood, which of course was a total toilet at that point. Um, but uh, a lot of the bands started playing out to, at other venues sure. in Hollywood and on the west side in, you know, in early 78. And that's... That's, that's where you caught everybody. And, and I, I started writing for the reader in, I think it was August of 78. So I got a chance to see everybody, and I was, you know, before I started writing about it, I was going out and seeing it all the right. time, so it wasn't much of a stretch to write about it. Well, I didn't move here till the tail end of 79, so I, I'd always had this 
thought that the mask ran through 78, at well, there least was, in some location. Well, there was there was the new mask. Ah, sirens. Yeah, my rides a, here. You know. <laughs> uh, uh, but but um, that that uh, Brendan Mullen after the original mask uh, uh, off Hollywood Boulevard was shuttered, opened up uh, the other mask, which was at Sunset in Santa Monica, or not Santa Monica and Vine, excuse me. But that didn't last too long, right? Are you wait? Are you sure that guy's not here for Tom? Yeah, I just I'm the one who called him, man. Oh, okay. uh, it's, a, it's, it's a, an experience in the park. Happens every few hours. I love it. Um, but uh, the the uh, the other mask only lasted for I don't know a few months. Maybe yeah, that's what I thought. Three months, and uh, but they had some good shows. I remember seeing the Cramps there, the Dead Boys. Um, it, it was. I mean, it was totally this open, totally bombed out location with like big holes in the concrete floor. And uh, uh, I remember when the Dead Boys played, uh, there were pipes over the stage, and Steve Bader's like threw his mic cord over it and hung himself from the pipe. It was pretty spectacular. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, in 78, 79, all the punk rock acts kind of exploded outward and started playing at any, you know, shitty club that would take them. And so, you know, beyond, like, the Sunset Strip Clubs, like, you know, the Whiskey. Yeah, everybody was uh, at the Whiskey. Like the Starwood. Uh, you know, you could go to Club 88 or, you know, all these other joints around town where that would take The Chinatown them. ones. Yeah, yeah. Hong Kong, Madam, not so much Madam Wong's. The Hong Kong was more of the punk rock right. joint. The, the new wave place was Madam yes. Wong's. Mm -hmm. That line had been drawn by yes. that, oh, by yeah. that point. I, wrote, I actually wrote, uh, I went to work for Rolling Stone and, and actually wrote a thing about the L.A. punk scene. It was the only time that they really featured the L.A. punk scene in that rag back then. When was that? Uh, 19... 80, maybe? So Hong Kong was still open? Yeah, I, I, I can't remember. It, the Hong Kong was open in 80. Yeah. For, I think the open? Hong Kong went through to almost 1981. Like I said, I didn't get here for 79, and I went to quite a few shows there. Right. Well, I can't so remember the exact... I can't remember the... It was the year that Urban Cowboy came out because John Travolta was on the cover of the issue that my story was in. Funny. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, you could see the stuff all over town. And um, and you could go to, like, there were clubs even in Westwood, like weird clubs. I remember going to see Top Jimmy and the Rhythm Pigs at a joint called Dylan's that was up the street from me in Westwood I remember Village. that place. It was a yeah. three-story place or something kind of elaborate, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, it was I a three-story. a disco place, right. And right. your band place. Right. I still remember. Wow. And, I forgot uh, about that. Yeah, the, one night I remember going over to that joint with uh, Jeffrey Lee Pierce. And uh, he got insanely drunk and slept on my living room floor. And I think that was the same night that Lester Bang showed up there, but I didn't. I never got a chance to meet him. That was my, my only opportunity to meet the guy. What was he doing out here? Who knows? Some probably drinking. Of, probably well, <laughs> on assignment on someone's you know yeah, tab, yeah. I'm sure. Well, you know, he was from San Diego, so he may have been out here you know, doing family. That's true. Um, but but why don't you talk to Tom? For well, no, no, we're, no, we're no, all I'm in just, this together. I'm just here to I, you know, Tom and I got here a little later than you, mm -hmm. and I always kind of get this feeling from. A lot of the uh, original OG punks, as it were, that if you weren't here for the Canterbury and the mask and all this early stuff, you kind of didn't have as much, you know, integrity or as much authenticity. And like, but then all this stuff still carries on. I wonder what you guys think of as yeah. punk rock moves through the ages. Does it lose its validity at some point, or is like a new punk band starting in the suburbs now still got any validity? Well, punk rock, you know, has entered 
the mainstream. You know, I mean, it's been mainstream. I mean, for ages. You know, for a long time. I mean, they've been selling Ramones T-shirts <laughs> for a yeah. long time. You know, remember when hot? They were big at Hot Topic. Well, yeah. Um, but uh, you know, it's a different thing. I mean, all of the early punk rock movements, no matter where they were, grew out of like a very small localized thing. You know, whether it was like the Malcolm McLaren developed scene over in London or, you know, CBGB scene in New York. Uh, I mean, obviously there were prefatory things that were happening. The Mubahay stuff yeah, in yeah, D.C. The, the, no, the Mab, the Mab was in uh, San Francisco. Right, right, but, uh, but other stuff, in, yeah, I'm yeah, separating them yeah. out. Um, but, but, I mean, now it's just, you know, what, what we know as punk rock has become common currency. Mm -hmm. And... You know, it's not going to be the same now as it was then because back then it was just. But do you kinda, think was, kids jump into it because that's their starting point to sort of like do it yourself and get out there? And to them, oh yeah, it's as valid as it was to us. My my son was in a straight edge band up in San Francisco. Yeah. He used to play that joint in Berkeley. What's the What's the big uh, oh, Gilman? I, yes, he played Gilman. Gilman. So well, yeah, the, the thing I loved was it was a few years ago when uh, maybe three years ago or so X played a um, a free show in uh, Pershing Square. Yep, downtown. I went. It was like two it years ago. Was it two years yeah. ago? Yeah, and it yeah. was it was fucking packed. I mean, the thing was huge. You and couldn't what, see the stage. Yeah, and what was amazing was the audience, and the audience was made up of you know people who were there at the beginning, people who came in slightly later, and then I'd say fifty percent of the audience were these young kids because they're still angry about the same stuff. They're still pissed off about the same stuff. There was a huge Hispanic audience there among these kids and I mean I think the it's you know in the same way they'll forever be kids whose first records were Beatles records there's a lot of these albums and that's what for me they were gateway drugs mm -hmm. you know and it's funny a mutual friend of ours recently said the thing about punk rock now it's become the it's suddenly become the wine and cheese uh the thing where there's a million gallery openings there's a million places where you could go and all the nice, books all the books that are coming yeah, out I mean, Tom, Tom and I two two weeks ago it was two weeks ago two weeks ago it? yeah uh, we went to a, 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 a little pop-up gallery thing that was put together to uh, announce the launch of the uh, Hatton Beard Press's new slash slash magazine book mm -hmm. and it's a $60 coffee table book that has, you know, a lot with a lot of extra pictures and writing. I contributed a chapter to it about Slash, uh, which was the first LA punk scene. Now, you know, back then, you know, you picked up Slash to find out who was playing where, when, and what fucked up thing some punk rocker had, did to right. some other, had done to some other punk rocker at a club the previous month. Sure. You know, now it's become a historic document. And and that, you know I mean over time, punk rock got legitimized Respectful. because it was yeah. art. And that's you know and, and it was you know back then people just looked at it as a reaction and people thought punk punk rockers were reactionaries and a bunch of filthy kids you know but they were artists and and ultimately it all came out in the wash and yeah it was legitimate and and now people take it as. An inspiration. Well, and that same night across town, there was a Bad Brains event at right. Shepherd Ferry's place. Right. And there's just been all these sort of things. You know, we had, you know, we had a very elegant, successful, fun book signing at Book Soup. You know, and it's well, funny where you go. 
Let, let's talk about the L.A. Public Library. The L.A. Public Library. Okay, that, yeah. was the, that was the first event. Yeah. That was the first event. That was the first it? event. Yeah. yeah, and and we also did the Grammy Museum. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I mean, the under the Big Black Sun, I mean, the book is a local bestseller. You know, it, this is not. You know, people are interested in it, and especially people who weren't who missed it. Who, they weren't yeah. there, yeah. and and you know, it's kind of like. What did you do when you were a punk rocker, Daddy? Well, this is what I did. It almost uh, seems like museum pieces, though. Sometimes, I mean, I, I you're I, looking at one. Oh, well, no, I, I played with uh, Cheetah down at Lethal Amounts. So uh -huh. They did like a Dead Boys book, same kind of thing. It was super right. expensive. They only made so many yeah. of them. Everybody wanted to sign. I'm always happy whenever Cheetah's getting, well, you I, know, put on a pedestal because he deserves it. But you know, it was. It still kind of feels weird for me, like the Track 16 thing. It's almost like. What Mick Jagger says: First you offend them, then they put you in a museum. Well, you know. Well, well yeah. and that's it. And there was also Rolling Stone. Um, it, it was in, within two issues, right around the book came out. First, there was a cover story on like the best punk, whatever they, one of their lists, one of their, uh -huh. the, the fifty best punk rock albums, right. and like they just did a best punk movies. Thing. I saw. Yeah, it. I was yeah. there's twenty five punk rock movies. That yeah. was my first reaction. No, I didn't even know. Well, that. The, and there were about four of them that I'd want to see. Yeah, yeah but no, again, yeah. each uh, list, LA was really represented. Uh -huh. I mean, the number one punk rock group movie was Decline, I believe, in this yes, list. Yeah, right. And then in the um, the album list. It was, uh, you know, well, well, it was X Black Flag. Yeah. It was in the top ten. There was a lot of LA, and then the next issue, and we were thrilled. We heard uh, Rolling Stone was going to review the book. Merle Haggard was on the cover of that issue. We opened it up. It was a full page ad, and then there was in that beginning thing where they had a little spotlight. They had a spotlight on Doe for his new single, and he was like, "It's the most coverage I've ever gotten from Rolling Stone." Mm -hmm. And I liked that it was, it was, you know, it all of a sudden these records started to get that treatment of. Most like a Tom Waits said, or something. Yeah, and you just—it's—it's. Oh it's no! Wait a second! I don't want to be—I <laughs> don't want to be associated with any punk rockers. Hey Tom, what did you get? Him? Well, I just stepped in to have a cigarette and then go home. You know, living in New York is like the ship is sinking and the water's on fire. Somebody moved the furniture. He said that. He said that once on on David Letterman. Um, Yes, we were saying. So I, no. I did want to point out that both of you have taken the time to create X books, uh, books that are very focused on X. You're both in the John Doe one. I wrote the first one. And so, okay, that came out first? 1983. All right, well, wait a minute. Now, what's this? This is one I'm thinking of. <laughs> Little did you know. In 1983, I spent two days writing the text for a little book that Last Gasp Press put out called uh, Beyond and Back, The Story of X. It was the first book about X, and it was edited by a thief, oh, a late thief, named uh, <laughs> F. Stop Fitzgerald, who apparently didn't give back the negatives that he borrowed for the book to all the photographers who contributed. Okay, no, wait, that's, that, I'd had that one, and it looks to, see now in on Amazon. I have one copy of that it, book. When you look it up on Amazon, okay. it looks like it came out between the Los Lobos book. No. No, it came out. Oh, it came out in '83. It, I did it, not know. It's that. the history of the band, or what passes for the history of the band, up through um, uh, um, more fun in the new world. More fun, yes. Yeah, well, they're still selling it on Amazon. Well, if they can find copies of it. When I, I, I actually, I did the publicity uh, for X's documentary, The Unheard Music, yeah. right before I went to work for Billboard, and um, I, I was handling the music press, and we ordered like. <laughs> 
couple hundred copies of that book and just gave them away. And like now I have one copy. It makes me sick. That's amazing. I think I think I have two. I'll give you one of mine. Thank you. Yeah. I've actually never seen it, but no, it looks like it's available. You can get it on Amazon. No, it's only that's only through used sellers. I know this. Because it's well, used book my, is all right. I, I think the Amazon rank on it is something like three trillion. Now. <laughs> hey, but you charted. <laughs> Bubbling under. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about putting the uh, Under the Big Black Sun book together. Because uh, when, I, when I first heard about it, I thought it was John Doe's story and you co-wrote it. And then when yeah. I got it, I go, that's not what it no. is at all. It's well, a bunch of different people's... Well, John never would have been that stupid. Yeah, no. <laughs> it was funny. So what had happened was, and it was funny, I asked you in a booth at Cantor's. Yes. It was very dated to participate. So we... It um, was historic. It was historic day. So I met John, like I said, I came in a little bit later. I saw my first Bonafide Punk show, an act show in 82. And so a lot of what this book was about and what started this book was I had there was not a lot of historical documents as to what happened so we a lot of what we heard about uh, Hong Kong Cafe or about the mask it was this was all mythical tusk that had gotten sure. read after and it was we knew what we read that Chris had written what was in Slash you know and when we could get old copies of Slash and we'd read about it you know, and really just like you know before that it was looking at show listings in the LA Times calendar section just good luck with that right. <laughs> and so I met John officially so I started seeing him when I was about 15 and then in 96 I went to go work at Electra, and I um, the first thing I did there was I put together uh, swiping the name of his book we put together a X anthology called Beyond and Back and it was a two Which is a very unusual package. It was a very unusual package. We put together a, it, it, not, we figured everyone would have the hits. We put together a weird chronological uh, document of the band that, that were uh, probably 70% were old shitty cassette masters. But, and John sequenced both discs as if they were two sets. It was just a really fun thing to do. We got a lot of people to write in the liner notes for it, including Chris. And, um, at that point, just being the fan I was, and John and I started to become pals, I started to kind of ask him about the scene as much as I could and try to clarify stories I knew. And I was finding out that most of what I knew was bullshit. <laughs> and then the stories that he'd start weaving were, like, way better. So at that sure. point, I started to do the, the fan thing, just be very honest. I'm like, you got to write a book, you got to write a book, you got to write a book. And he kept saying no, and he's like, I don't want to write the John Bo Doe book, and I don't want to write the L.A. Punk Rock book from my eyes he's like it's not fair it's like there's you know there's too many realities in it and so i don't know how and then i was bugging him for years and we became pals and and, and stayed consistent pals from that point and then his sweetheart chrissy started to bug him at one point about writing a book writing a book writing a book and then one day it came up and he was like well maybe we've got a lot of voices in it and I don't care if everyone contradicts themselves because it's everyone's truth and so mm -hmm. and that's part of the fun of it anyway. part of the fun yeah. yeah like everyone's got their own thing and everyone was fucked up and everyone's you know like I beg your pardon uh, well <laughs> except for Chris and uh, so we sort of came with this idea okay what if we got you know just a couple of people involved in writing the story so make a very very long story short didn't know how to go about it had a band that I'd signed when I was an A&R guy called the old 97s mm -hmm. who went to school with a woman who became a nonfiction literary agent named Lynn Johnson and I was like how do you how do you make a book you know and they're like well you need an agent so we met with this woman she totally got it 
she had us essentially put together, for lack of a better term, a demo tape. We wrote a sample chapter and kind of an outline of what we thought the book would be. And John agreed to do it, but sort of like, yeah, all right, now go get the book deal, whatever. you know. And then she came back to us pretty quickly. And uh, the good folks at DeCapo bit, and they liked the idea. So then we, we started to piece together who would write for what. And with John, it was almost word association. And like, he'd be like, okay, we should do a chapter of the Canterbury. And he'd be like, Jane Whelan. Mm-hmm. You know, okay, we're going to do, what are we going to do on hardcore? And he's like, well, we got to separate that both between Rollins and Watt. You know, it goes on tour, comes to town, blah, blah, blah. And then there's a few people that, you know, I only knew personally two people uh, that were in the book other than that as a fan. And that was Chris, who I met in the long ago, and Charlotte Caffey, who I met about the same time. And so... Right away, we just we kind of said, you know, okay, Chris, just write about the music, just you know, write about the scene. Charlotte, which I felt, about. which I felt great about because that was, I mean, I couldn't pretend to have been, you know, one of the OG. But you people. covered it top I'd to bottom, it. so yeah. you'd already filed all that it stuff away in your yeah, head. It wasn't any stretch, and I mean, I. In, in some cases, I actually went back to the you know stacks of old yellowing readers that I had right. in boxes, and I Which went, makes sense. and I refreshed my memory a little bit. Well, and and purposely or not purposely, we gave no one more direction but the simple one liner yeah one liner yeah. this is what you do and no one except I think I smuggled you out Jane's chapter oh yeah uh, that was our, that was the first thing that I saw and and you know I'm reading this with tears of laughter rolling down my That's face brilliant. going well nobody's gonna top this one yeah and and it was so funny when when she showed up for the for the Grand Museum thing I went Jane Jane that's my favorite chapter and he goes Oh, thank you, Chris. <laughs> that little tiny yeah. voice, and and the the audio book is worth buying just to hear Jane reading this depraved chapter yeah. that she contributed. It's just it's hilarious. Yeah. To but do a quick side yeah. plug, just so I don't forget, we met this guy through Lynn, our our, our agent, a guy named Scott Sherritt, who's Scott. like one of the kings of the audiobooks. Scott, the king producer of all audiobooks. Hi, Scott. Hey, we Scott. Love you. We love you, and he, you pulled together the impossible, and he literally, in the 11th hour, uh, a month or two before the book was being published... It was February. It was February, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, it was right at the Grammy time. Right. He managed my to, birthday. to gather... Oh, that's right. <laughs> he managed to uh-huh. gather every author, and so every author, which I think were 13, 13 authors, plus yeah. Billy Armstrong, who did the forward to read their chapters. So we do have this amazing audio document wow. that's out there with every author reading their chapter. It's really, I, it, it, we almost challenged Scott. It's like, yeah, you do that. We didn't think he'd pull, and he pulled it off, and it's it's really good. To well, that's that the ultimate touring van thing to keep you going for, like, city to city, oh, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. It's really good. How I, long would that be in, in total? It's, it's I think it's like seven hours. Oh, it's, yeah. uh, it's, it's six discs. I think it's seven hours. It's, the, there's, we, we, we got a physical, thing produced it was and we did a deal uh with that with penguin random house and it's um so it is available on cd audible uh any of the you know i think it's on itunes but it but it, it literally we didn't miss one author so every single person read it's, their it's just it's just so much fun it was so much fun to do it was so much fun to do and and it was uh but i give all props to scott for being able to pull this off and it's scott scott was just the greatest you know i mean a, a man of infinite patience and i was gonna say great vibe and we we did the all the local sessions were done over at the village recorder and and it was just 
you know, I walked out of there and I said, hey, I'm a rock star. It's <laughs> a nice place. Yeah. yeah. And patience. Yeah. Who, who was the, uh, <laughs> yes. who, who gives the surprise performance? Like, who do you think really, well, Watts, wow, he was so Watts, great. Watts fabulous. Watts too. is great. Um, Jack Grisham is really great as far as his delivery of it. Uh, X-Scene was a pro. I mean, one of my favorites, I mean, aside from you, Chris. Thank you for kissing my ass. Uh, <laughs> Dave Alvin. I love Dave Alvin's oh, yeah. chapter. And then James. I mean, every the thing about it is everybody, it's like, everybody's got such a strong, distinct personality, and it well, comes across in this book. That's and why they're like, in the book. Yeah. And I mean, like, that's why they were punk rockers, because they had strong personalities. You, people people on that scene didn't put up with weak shit too much. Yeah. And you had you had to be be able to, like, give as well as you got. So I want to yeah. hear I want to hear Chris D's. We'll get you a copy. Chris yeah. is great. I mean, there's the thing I could say honestly is like there we in in the batch of everybody reading and in, in, in all the chapters. Oh wow, the police helicopters. Yeah, Chris man, it, it, there's no dull it's moment. Going on. <laughs> We're at the corner of tragedy and doom. Well, it's kind well of, that's going to be the story of our joint <laughs> autobiography, right? Yeah, no kidding. Um, but yeah, there's not a clunker in that. We'll get you. I'll get you a copy. I've got a few extra copies. Oh back. man, you know I'm not. I'm not fishing, but I no, it's it. fine. You know what? They gave us a couple. If you want to do some kind of like giveaway, I'll give you a copy to give away to All a right. listener. All right. Well, that would some be very cool. Contest. We'll do something like that. There for you sure. go. Um, if you could, if if the listener could draw the most realistic picture of Chris Morris. <laughs> The winner, based on sound only. Diesel Bob, you know you're. <laughs> you're really, you're. Anyway, back to the book. No, but when we that's me around, hitting Tom in the head. When we sent everyone these topics, we uh, no one like said I smuggled Chris's Jane's chapter just because it was so good. And it's a good model. And it's, it's a good model, very but, good model. But no one else, I believe, read anybody else's things. We didn't want anyone influenced. Now, this was part like us going, how do you write a book? Okay, let's get him to do this. And and then after it was all out there, we kind of went like, oh, shit, we're going to have to turn this all into a book and kind of like hope this would all come together. And these chapters were coming in, and we got Chris's, and it was you know, great. Everybody was pretty much... Well, but everything dovetails, which is what's really interesting about the book. And the one thing that and I've said this to Tom before, the one thing that really interests me about the book is that there's one act besides X that everybody talks yep. about, and that's the Screamers. The screamers. Yeah. And that is the one act that most people who read this book never saw because they were around for a very short period of time, they played very few shows, and they never had an official record out. But everybody on the punk scene in this town venerated that band because they were completely different, completely yeah. original, they were stunning performers, and you'd walk out of the shows, and you would just—you'd just been shaken to the core. You knew you had seen something that was had you seen completely him? different. No, and I was going to say, and that was one of the things too. So a big mm. part of this book for me was like I wanted all these stories. I wanted to know what happened. I wanted to know, uh, you know, what it was like in this Narnia world. I only read through, you know, magazines Narn and Narnia. And Narnia. Right? We're, we're, we're like the Chronicles of Narnia. You know, and I mass. say that like I've ever read Narnia. <laughs> You know. Oh, you're good at yeah. this. So I remember the, the Screamers last show, mm -hmm. which I, or last time they played Sunset Strip, I believe it was at the Roxy, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I remember, saw it in the paper, and I go, I keep hearing about this band, i got to go, and I hadn't been here very long, and something came up, I had to do something, and I, oh, I'll catch them next time. There was, I, I was and, at that show. Yeah, and which is exactly, I had a friend of mine, I'm driving up to San Francisco to see the Sex Pistols. You, I go, ah, I'll see them in LA. Right, I, right. Was, <laughs> I was at that show, too. So I've, you, never seen, I've, ne I've never seen so much shit fly out of an audience. There was like this rain of objects. It was like a thunderstorm of 
bad shit had broken out in the crowd, and, you know, and it was raining that night, and there must have been 60 umbrellas on that stage at the end of the show. It was just, it was the most amazing thing. It was amazing. absolutely amazing. But yeah, I didn't know the Screamers thing. I had no idea of, I knew who the Screamers were, I would heard the tracks that had, that had right. broken through the weird, but I had no idea there was such reverence by, as Chris said, everybody. Across the board, I think it's almost almost every chapter's reference, and that's what was well when we got all the chapters in. It was like the easiest album to sequence. All of a sudden, we're like, "Oh shit, we got a story!" You know, John mm -hmm. and I wrote some interstitial stuff. John wrote a lot of interstitial stuff to sort of help, help tie it segue. together. And then there was Harold, right? And then there were drugs. <laughs> and uh, but like when you know the, the the way chapters were coupling off each other and and. You know, Chris would mention something that would come up in Dave's chapter, and Pleasant and Jane had this very interchangeable thing that they didn't know about. Well, and when we put it together, it it read like a book, and it was in it. It literally fell together. It literally just was like one, two, three, four, five. This is where it goes. And well, you know, one thing to remember is it, like it, as far as far as the OG people who were you know contributed to the book are concerned. Everybody knew everybody else. Mm -hmm. Everybody went to see everybody went to see everybody else's. I mean, but even when things started getting a little bit bigger, you'd see the same people everywhere, and you know, not just the musicians, but you'd see the people in the audience everywhere. I mean, there are people who are friends of mine today that I've known for almost forty years as a result of going to those shows. Um, but you know, the the whole book hangs together because everybody kind of knew everybody. It was all, and and the reason that the book works so fabulously is because it's not just one person's story because it wasn't one person's story no. it was this group of people's stories and and i think that's the great wisdom in the way that john and tom organized the book it, it's it's perfect in that well, way when you talk about all those original punks who are pretty well represented in this book uh people i know that were a little later on that were maybe coming in from orange county mm -hmm. or the south bay and had pretty good success with what they were mm -hmm. doing they always tell me how they felt like the big, here's the hand, you know. Well, Jack you're, says that. You're not yeah. really that welcome in our scene. Jack you says feel that feel that was book. true? Well, yeah, it was because, you know, there was a scene going before they started materializing, which was around 1979, 1980, and, and they really altered it in a very dramatic fashion. All of a sudden, people were getting the shit beaten out of them at shows by a bunch of kids who were coming up who wanted to be punk rockers who had been surfers two years previously, and they really kind of... Uh, infected the scene in a very negative way as far as a lot of the original people on the scene were concerned. And it, it, it did really change things. And that's why this book is kind of styled as being between 1977 and 1982. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, like the hardcore end of things is, is represented by Rollins, by Watt, and by Jack Grisham. Jack, yeah. and, and they're in there, but they weren't around when all the rest of that stuff was happening. Well, they 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 were either from Washington D.C. Yeah, like yeah, Henry, right. or from Orange County. Right, and like, but it, it's funny. Teresa talks about it in her chapter a bit about like when the hardcore kids came in and um, it wasn't pretty. Wrecked the Vex. Yeah, and, or not the Vex. The, but don't uh, you think that sort of started right here at home when the Germans were doing what they were doing? No, kind of, because kind no. of showing everybody you could do this and really fuck shit up. Well, the thing was when the Germans did it, people weren't punching each other out in the audience. 
You know, it was still kind of like the violence was it, still maintained the, the, on well, stage. The violence was on stage. Yeah, okay. You know, it's I mean, and of course that was had the precedent and some of the stuff that Iggy did years before. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it 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 wasn't. It was theater. You know, mm-hmm. and 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 all the violence in the case of the Germs was self-inflicted. You know, and self-directed, but uh, it wasn't going on. I mean, I I never ever felt unsafe at an L.A. punk show until the kids started coming in from the beaches. And I, I talk about this in the book. The first Black Flag show that I went to, which was at the Stardust Ballroom, I walked into the place, and the first thing I saw was about 20, 30 punk rockers, you know, skinheads, beating up this long hair in the middle of the floor. And, and that was when I said the temperature has changed. Yeah. And, and it wasn't pretty. Well, and it was, it was great to get finally, because again, going back to me, when I came in, in 82, it was violent. Mm-hmm. And it was scary. And I'd go, I remember going to my first hardcore show at the um, Santa Monica Civic. And I, it, just, it was the first time I saw like guys getting carried out bloodied. And I was like, I was, I was a wisp of a kid. I was scared shitless. And it was so, I had an image that I think always sat in the back of my head that punk rock was always violent. You were always taking your life in your hands. And the second you stepped into a show, you you could be shivved or you could be, and from the suburbs, and I grew up in the suburbs just outside of LA. Valley we, boy. Valley boy, we looked at punk rockers as dangerous. Of course they all had knives. Of course they were, they were gonna fuck you up if they had the chance. I've and got my knife right here. I know you do. You've always been dangerous. But the um, the thing I, I really liked about Jack's chapter, unapologetically, is just, to, I mean, not to generalize his chapter, but to generalize his chapter, it's sort of like, <laughs> yeah, you know, you started it, motherfuckers, and we came in and finished it, you know? And it's just sort of like, you know, you opened up that door, and this is what it was, and and it, but it was, I didn't realize that it, it wasn't as scary going to a show in, it, those, in those early years. It, it, was, it, it became was. very different. Yeah funny about Jack. I played in Phoenix once with Keith Morris in that uh, My illegitimate son, yes, in the, who has uh, his own book coming out. Yes, he does. I'm mm-hmm. going to get him on here soon. Anyways, we were playing there, and we, some club, and we were on time, amazingly, and we're just wow. sitting around forever, and we're like, what is the problem? Why can't we soundtrack? Why is this taking so long? And they go, oh, this band came in last night and just broke everything. We're trying to get it fixed as, as quickly as we can. I go, who was it? And it was whatever band Jack Richmond had at the time, Joy Killer, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And then the guitar player with us had been in Tender Fury with Jack, and we were all laughing. He goes, you know, it's funny until you're in the middle of it every day, and then it's just really not that funny. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, what can you say? Um, you know, a lot of stuff about the punk rock book, and that's interesting, but I want to talk to you both about uh, and you sort of went around it with your book. How did, how did you, Chris, get your... Cause I, I remember running into you two years ago and go, hey, I'm putting out a Los Lobos book. And since then, you've obviously had more books come out. How were you, how were you getting your things going in terms of publishing? So more the business end, getting your, your writing off the ground to earn you some money. People ask me. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, everything... I've, I've had two books and pieces of two other books out in the last year. Yeah, you kind of blew and, up, and, I have to say. Well, I've been trying to take the weight back off. Um, <laughs> but, but uh, no, I, my, friends, uh, uh, my friend Peter Blackstock, who uh, at that point was doing a series of books for the University of Texas Press uh, about American music, asked me to do a book about Los Lobos. And, you know, I've known and seen them since, you know, the uh, 
early 80s. Mm -hmm. And I said, sure. And while I was writing that book, um, I got stuck when I was writing it. I hit a horrible wall, uh, a wall of tapes that I had to transcribe, actually. <laughs> and um, I started writing these blog posts about Bob Dylan's records. And, you know, I ultimately finished the Lobos book, but then, you know, I put all these posts up on my Facebook page and people read them. And I asked a friend of mine, you know, would you be willing to publish these? My friend Tosh Berman, who ultimately wound up writing the foreword to the book. And he said, no, I wouldn't, but I know somebody who might. And then a, another publisher later, <laughs> the book came out earlier this year. Um, and then, you know, Tom asked me to do the chapter for, for, the, um, for Big Black Sun, and the guys who did um, the Slash book asked me to do that book. So... Um, Are you writing the whole stuff? I mean, besides whatever's, you know, coming out of Slash, you're tying it all together with... No, no, I, I only contributed one chapter. Oh, I see. Uh, and basically it's about, you know, how Slash was an important influence on, on me when it got started. Uh, I mean... Steve Samioff came to see me. I was working for Landmark Theaters and had an office a block away from the New Art, which was one of our theaters back in in '77. Uh, and Steve came and hit me up for advertising, and I said, "Well, I have nothing to do with advertising." He gave me some copies of the magazine and left. And I started reading the magazine every month, and I went, "Wow, there's some cool shit going on in this town." And I, I was already aware of like you know Patti Smith and the Ramones and television and the stuff that was coming out of New York. And I said, "Wow." I guess I should maybe check this out. And so at, in early 78, I started going out to see the bands, late 77, early 78. And I went, this is legitimately exciting. And that was really what I brought to the table when I started working for the reader in the late summer of 78. Cool. Um, but I mean, literally, you know, I don't have an agent. Everything's just kind of fallen into my lap, and I'm very... Lucky that Are you guys gearing up to do anything new or that you can give us a hint about? Like anything, kind of outlining something, you're getting ready to pitch? I mean, you know, or? it's, it, well, it's funny. It, it, we, well, this thing's still, I mean, yeah, this Big is Black super Sun new, is but rolling. Well, no, and it, rolling. Took a, it took on a life that I don't think any of us expected. We're really happy yeah. that it's been received. And, and as did uh, Chris's Dylan book, which I hate even calling it a Dylan book. In some ways, because of it's as close to an autobiography yeah, as I'm going to write. It's well, it's not. We're going to get that. We would take, yeah, the next thing we're announcing is I'm getting Chris to write his book. It took, me, <laughs> took me 20 years to get John to do it. I'm, I don't, I'm not going to wait that long with you. Well, you can't because I'll be dead. But <laughs> Chris Morris is going to outlive us all, ladies and gentlemen. We've been it. hearing the sirens yeah, all day. Exactly. <laughs> but um, and keep going. Oh, damn, he's still breathing. Let's just leave. To, just to log roll a bit. Chris's book also spent, I think, two weeks at number one at Book Soup. No, only here. one. Uh, only. Actually. I did a reading at Book Soup uh, on Sunset, uh, middle of last month, and it, incredibly, it was number one on their paperback nonfiction bestseller list. And then the following week, uh, John, Tom, Pleasant, Chris, and Jane, Jane did uh, an event uh, that I couldn't attend, and um, Big Black Sun was number one on the hardcover nonfiction mm -hmm. bestseller list. So. Um, we're just we're gonna sit here and pat each other. Pat each other. No, and, and being number one on any <laughs> chart is a great fucking feeling. Yeah, it's, it's like that. It was, uh, was kind of like that scene in uh, that thing you do where they hear the, your, right. the song on the radio oh, for yeah. the first time. Yeah, yeah, Fanta, wow, we're on we've, the radio. We've made it. Uh, yeah. Speaking of radio, now you guys, uh, you know, 
like I said, the Overachievers Club. You got you've had your blog where you interview a lot of interesting people, and you have been on uh, legitimate uh, get it in your car radio a number of well, times. Well. In in the LA only thing. once, well, but I was looking. And then at, back in the seventies yeah. uh, in Chicago. Oh, well, deal. it was Madison. I, was, I I did, you know, my 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 two stretches in professional radio were separated by what thirty years, um, but uh, well, the world was catching up, <laughs> if you say so. Um, but but uh, um, I mean, I fortunately I always did. I've always done freeform radio, and and after indie. Uh, 103.1 had been on the air for, what, a year? It was longer uh, than that. A, year, a couple a, years. It was a couple of years. Uh, I took over uh, Watusi Rodeo from Doc Holliday, who was the original host, who had moved to Nashville. And uh, that's him on his bike yep. right now. <laughs> and, um, uh, hey, but, Mike. I mean, it was great because it was, they just said, go in and do your show for, you know, two hours and we'll right. keep our hands off. And... Uh, and then after Indy went down, I took the show over to Cyan uh, Radio, and I was there for six years. So, you know, I mean, I never thought I'd be, uh, you know, collecting Social Security and spinning records. <laughs> but it happened, you know. Mm -hmm. It did happen. So, um, yeah, I'd, I'd love to do it again. Certainly a lot of fun. With, uh, all, the, with all the satellite radio uh, possibilities and stuff, is it, have you looked into it, like a place to slot in? or? Well, a dish just costs too much. <laughs> No, I, I, I haven't. You know, I'm very lazy. You know? All right, I'm but an, you, I'm you know have, what? That's I'm fair an, enough. I'm an exceptionally lazy person. But you have a face for radio, Chris, and I think that. You know, so do you. God bless. And an ass. Yeah. Too. Uh, When's your blog coming back on? You uh, we, yeah, we've like, been on. We've been on a hiatus. The podcast. The podcast. We um, uh, we're on a little bit of a hiatus. Uh, I I do it with uh, some final podcast with my pal Eric Gorfain. Who's a great? Um, Hi, Eric. Hey, Eric. A great uh, violinist, string arranger, and has an incredible quartet called the Section Quartet. And between the work he was doing, both uh, sessions recording, producing, and the book, which turned out to be as much as it all came together, like I said, it was um, shocking how much work it was. There was yeah. like, oh, we actually have to work, and going from not only collecting stuff. Um, you know, keeping on everyone doing the photos, but doing all the clearances, the licenses, getting W9s to make sure everyone get paid, got paid, doing... Uh, I was paid, by the way. That's right. You, we love, that's we love hearing that. that. I want to legitimize it. I wanted to make sure everyone got paid, and especially all the photographers. We had uh, a lot of photographers come in here. We wanted it to represent not only the voices of um, these people in, in words, we wanted to represent these great photographers, so we we got all that together, but with everything came clearances, and every time we printed lyrics, we had to do all that, you know. And you had to, in yeah. certain cases, you had to deal with people who were clinically insane. That's a, always a problem. I, <laughs> I've never called you clinical, Chris. Uh, yes, but, you uh, <laughs> but it was it was really um, a lot of work, and so it sort of went on hold. We did one recently uh, with John Bryan. We came back and sort of did a comeback with John Bryan. We just had so much fun, and we're just like, we got to start doing it again. So we're just getting ready to ramp back. Where up do you again. do those at? Well, we we did the first twenty nine at a store called High Fidelity, hence the name of the podcast, live from High Fidelity, which is a little store in um, Las Vegas area with a great stage, and you know we brought a, like our friends in, and and we got Van Dyke Parks, Glenn Johns, I think said so you heard that one. Doe mm -hmm. did it. Um, and then uh, the, lar the one we did with John, we wanted to 
were like, John would really be have fun, would be fun to do one with, and he was like, all right, let's do it at Largo after my show. So it wound up being a midnight show in the little room at Largo. So it's become sort of a um, a little bit mobile, now. a mobile, it's, yeah, it's itinerant, yeah, itinerant. We talked right. to uh, the guys over at Fingerprints about doing one there. The idea, ideally, I, th I think, would be doing it in record stores because the whole thing is about love of vinyl. Wait, wait. Re Records? Oh, there's so many now. They're, back they're, like they're all crazy. over. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, if you say so. <laughs> and there's something like, and it's wonderful, there's something like 18 new stores that have opened in LA in the last like four years. I can't keep track of it. It's wild. So, but it's it's been But really Hastings fun. Books and Music closed last week, so that makes up for all. There's one down. There you go. Yeah. Which one was that? Uh, huge chain, out, well, fairly substantial chain at one point out of uh, Midwest, Amar right? Amarillo, Texas. Oh. And they, they had a lot of stores in the Southwest, and uh, I actually covered their convention years ago where Roy Orbison performed. Uh, wow. And, and uh, they were big chain, and they filed for Chapter 7 two weeks ago. I think there's something to that. I don't think the chains are able to, like, you know, kind of do that no. multi-store thing. But if you've got a little mom and pop and have a niche, mm -hmm. you got a chance. Well, if your rent's not killing you or, well, you know, like my, the other typical things My small local business. record store is Freak Beat in Sherman Oaks, which great is store. a great store. Yeah. And it's been Bob great Say. watching. Bob Say. There you go. And Tom, those guys are great. And, mm -hmm. and watching that... Um, you know, been going to that store since it opened, obviously, and and really watching the boom. There's, there's anytime you go in there, there's people in there. Where in the beginning, it would be like me and one other guy flipping through things. There's good, there's well, yeah. good I, going there. You know, I was, I was telling Tom yesterday. I had to trundle down to uh, Amoeba Music in Hollywood to uh, grab some records for some research I'm doing, and I walked in the door, and Young the Giant was playing there, and there were probably four to five hundred kids. Packing the aisles, mm -hmm. they had the aisles taped off. Yep. No one could shop because this band was playing, and I mean, it's a huge store, but they still get enough traffic to support it because they're the only like you know mega, mega super store, big right. ass record outlet in Los Angeles. And does it piss you off when you go there and look for three things and none of them are in stock? <laughs> I, get, I have that happen. I <laughs> get. I've, I've been known to get annoyed sometimes, but. Uh, That's that, there. We just could sh just end but the you show see, with that but statement. You see, if if, if, you're, if you're sane, you go into that store with a shopping list because otherwise it's a black hole and you'll just be sucked in. And no, I mean I'll be out. A couple of I need these later. three yeah. things. Yeah. Yeah. What? You, come on, just, and especially if it's something new yeah. that just came I, out. Or no, you're a smart. You're a smart dude. Whenever I go there, it just warms my heart because there's kids ditching school, smoking cigarettes out front like it should be. It's that's what out. I and that's what I yeah. do too. I, yeah. I, I no. ditch work and <laughs> exactly. I go and smoke cigarettes. cigarettes they outside. think I'm at the office, but exactly. It warms my heart. Man, a few records. No, it's a great. And they don't. And no coffee is sold on the premises, which is a good point. There you go. You know, I hate those cafe yep. things. Uh, I will end with this question then, since we uh -oh. we uh, kind of. Oh my! By the way, before you, before you ask the question, okay, I just want to say that my Bob Dylan book is called "Together Through Life: A Personal Journey with the Music of Bob Dylan" oh. because I wanted to get an actual plug-in while I was sitting in front of this mic. You absolutely <laughs> can. Uh, you should read some of it. Well, well, you, we don't have a copy here. No, I've got a copy here. You want to do a little quick reading? No, it's going right. to take too long. All right. <laughs> we'll bring you back. And Tom wouldn't have part, anything to do. Part two. I could do uh, background vocals. So yeah. Wanna, yeah. No, thank Damn, you. Damn, you're, you're lost, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> If you're traveling to the North Country. Okay. Uh, Last question. question I was going to ask. Uh, since we got on the vinyl thing, a lot of people have been saying to me, and I don't know if they're just cranky or what, but that they're already feeling that 
this big trend towards vinyl is going to be shutting down anytime soon. What do you think? I mean, I feel like there's a lot of people that are really enjoying it. But yeah, when you talk about when I talk to people, oh, my record's coming out. We made 500. Right. I mean, that's I, super common. Yeah. Every 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 trend ends. So yeah, this trend will end. It's the, the but the thing is, it's like you know, not to get corny. It was never a trend with me. I always had the record player in there, sure. and there's that yeah. that thing that was. I always said the thing I like about vinyl, and I think you know, there's a there's an article that. Floating all over Facebook right now, where they're like, "New study proves that most record collectors are are, are lonely middle-aged men." And it's like, <laughs> like well, shot, yeah, that fact, but, um, but big the thing, surprise. The thing that vinyl does, and and in the, it's not even like the you know, of course, there's nostalgia, of course, there's that, but I know this from uh, really, really wonderful young people. I know they're into vinyl. People that are much older than me, they're into vinyl. It's the experience of active listening versus passive listening. And I think you're involved. You're involved. You have to flip it over in 15 minutes or 25 minutes. You, you get involved with the album cover a bit. You're actually and look, we all went through and 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 maybe play sort. And I got an iPad as soon as it came out, and I, and I was like, okay, as much background music as I want. And that's what it became for me. And I still will do that if people are coming over. It's a lot easier to put on an iPod and let some sort of playlist shuffle, or put on some Apple Music or Spotify playlist and let it go. And you're at a wow, restaurant. Wow, you're even lazier than I am. Oh, now you're discovering that today? <laughs> and so you, you go, but there's that, that thing of of um, actually putting on a record that I think will hold some someone. The, the reason I'm not sad about it ending is because the fucking major labels have completely went, oh wait, there's a dollar to be made? And now a new piece of vinyl is like 29 to $39? Yeah, yeah the copy, the co a copy of a record that you bought at a peaches store for three dollars and ten cents in the you know nineteen sixties will now cost you you know twenty to thirty dollars. When it costs you forty dollars uh, to buy a new copy of the first Boston album, you're like, or you just look no, for one of the twin men copies that are out there for buck ninety nine. There's, there's one. I mean, I'll buy an LP. I mean, I'm you know I am super lazy when it comes to listening to music. As long as it sounds good, I don't really care what the format is. CDs are fine with me. But if there's a record that I really cherish and it it's in a different package, I'll buy it. I own two copies, one of them still sealed, of Black Star by David Bowie mm -hmm. on, on LP. Why? Because it looks fabulous. Mm -hmm. And it sounds fabulous. Wait, someone uh, told me if you take the inner sleeve of that out in the sun, do you know about this? Mm -mm. Oh it, yeah, it, it like changes color no, or something? No, it, it turns into a star field. <laughs> it turns, I mean that that one yeah, was really was, expensive, and when yeah. you look at all the different things they did with it, okay, fair enough. You no. got die cut, right. yeah. inserts. No, I mean, it, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's a phenomenal package, and and it was just and I bought two of them because I know I'm going to fuck one of them up. Right. <laughs> That's fair enough. Looking ahead, gentlemen, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you uh, for the thank you, man. The overachievers win again. <laughs> all let's, right, let's go be lazy. Let's, let's do, do it. it. Time to go watch Law and Order and take a nap. Now you're talking. There we go. Night, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Tone Duff Sessions, a feature of Rare Bird Radio. Our next conversations will feature Jennifer Casey Bomber, author of Down and Derby, and Shauna Maggie Mayhem Cross, author of Whip It and screenwriter of Bad Santa 2.